Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we will continue to reflect into uh, these special topics. And I say these special topics, this is a subject matter that caters to what is in your heart and in your mind as it relates to anything about the Christian and Catholic faith, right? Anything is game. <laughs> you can ask me any question under the sun. Certainly over the past year, you have asked me everything from classic apologetics to questions about our very personal uh, journey with God and the spiritual life. So we have really addressed a great number of topics over the months. Now, this evening, what I want to do is respond to a specific question as it relates to uh, one of you out there who was wondering about the hour in the Gospel of John. The question was phrased, it appears that John is very much focused on the hour as Jesus is focused on the hour. Can you help me make sense of the hour in the Gospel of John? I, I love that question because it is a question that is really offering some critical thought into Scripture study, right? This is a topic, by the way, the hour in the Gospel of John, that I have to some degree already talked about. But what I wanted to do this evening is to maybe bring some of that subject matter that I have already talked about into this discussion, and to just continue to explore the deeper meaning of the hour in the Gospel of John. And uh, so what we are going to be about here this evening is taking a more topical look at the hour, and why Jesus was so focused on the hour, and as he was, what was the very rich context, and as we get into that context, we hopefully we'll discover the kind of, uh, a kind of golden thread, if you will, into what drives Jesus talking about the hour, what, what drives his focus on the hour. So this evening, similar to last week, will be a bit of a scripture study. This is good because we need to get back into uh, sacred scripture and make sure that we are responding to those all-important questions as they relate to sacred scripture. I have a ton of questions that are very specific to, to certain verses. So uh, this question is responding to one of those very specific questions, and certainly over the course of uh, the next month or so, I will continue to respond to those specific questions. All right, all that being said, before we get into the hour, I want to first just note that it's probably best to first consider how we think about time in general, right? How we consider man's time, chronology, and its relationship to uh, God's time, chirology. Uh, recall how I've talked about this before. Kairos in the Greek is God's time. Chronos is man's time. And in so many ways, we are made to consider man's time, chronos, in the light of God's time, kairos. What do we mean by Kronos and Kairos? Well, Kronos includes the minutes we put into our tablets and smartphones, right? Which are guided by what? But the 24-hour day 
seven-day week and 365-day year. Kairos, on the other hand, is the appointed time for the purposes of God, right? The appointed time for the purposes of God. In our study in the book of Genesis, I was talking about, in a consideration of days, the deeper Hebrew meaning behind day. Day comes from the Hebrew word yom, which is not a word that is tied to sequence per se, but more purpose. Yom in the Hebrew is best defined as purpose-driven time, not maybe time that is tied to clocks or that which is uh, linear. No, purpose-driven time, that which is caught up in what is vertical. Ultimately, uh, the, the point to be had here is that along our faith journey of prayer, which is going to be important in our discussion into the Gospel of John, chronos can really only be understood in light of kairos, right? Because it is prayer that opens us up to kairos, God's time, and begins to inform and form chronos to its best use. Kairos, God's time, grace time, we can call it, purpose-driven time, not chronos, gives order to our days. You know, we have the tendency to be preoccupied with things outside of our control, and consequently, we get bogged down by what? Chronos, man's time, what we put into our tablets and smartphones about what we need to do today, right? You want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans, right? You might be going along a day, and then suddenly you had a very unexpected encounter at two o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly, the rest of your day turned upside down. That's probably God doing something in your life. In our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us <laughs> this preoccupation is precisely what we need to avoid. So he urges us to what? Not uh, worry or become anxious about what tomorrow will bring. The Greek word for anxious uh, and or worry is preoccupied. If you are preoccupied with what you need to do, what is going to happen? You're not going to see outside of yourself. You're not going to look up and be present to those around you. Learn the language of kairos, grace time, purpose-driven time. And indeed, my friends, your chronos, your days as you live them from one day to the next will certainly benefit exponentially in God's grace. All right, so why open up with that reflection into uh, Kronos and Kairos. Well, here we are set to talk about the hour, right? The hour and how we think about it, just not within Kronos, but certainly how God thinks about it and how he has revealed a very particular point about Kairos. Okay, so this will be explained over the course of the remainder of this evening. By the way, my friends, I am going to draw, as we explore the Gospel of John and the Hour, from an article that Scott Hahn had written titled, The Hour is Coming. I can still recall the very lecture in his classroom when he was talking about it, and it really has stayed with me. And I went back to a piece he had written uh, for The Rock magazine on this very subject matter. So I'm kind of going back to some of that, and we will explore with his insights. And so with that, as Dr. Hahn opens up in his article and 
as he did in his lecture, he poses the question, you know, what's in an hour? And, and I think that's a great question because on one hand, as he states, an hour can seem like a lifetime if it's something you're half, having to grit through, right? <laughs> there have been times where I've had to battle through some sickness on air and the half hour on air just seems like a lot longer <laughs> than other half hours, right? Because I was sick. I wasn't well. So I was made to maybe look at the clock a little more than I'm used to. Conversely, conversely, uh, maybe, my friends, an hour doesn't seem that long because you are with your beloved. So isn't it interesting how a 60-minute time period can, on one hand, seem like a lifetime, right? But on the other, seem like a second. So what I'm talking about here is, well, the hour is very much caught up in, in how we are feeling, uh, maybe who we are in the company with, right? So something to think about as we explore John's hour. Because throughout the pages of John's gospel, Jesus refers to the moment when his mission would be fulfilled as what but his hour, his hour. So to get to the heart of it, I think it would be best to define what Greek Jesus is employing here, what we have in the Gospel of John. The Greek here is ora, ora, H-O-R-A. It has a very specific literal sense in the Gospel. And again, when we use the phrase literal sense, what we are talking about is the intention of the author, okay, and in the light of who he is writing to. So it has us considering the historical context, of course. So the hour, the word hour, denotes the culminating moment of our Lord's life and mission, right? The historical events of his sacrificial self-offering. What do we read in the Gospel of John chapter 7, verse 30? So they sought to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. How about John chapter 8, verse 20? He taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The references to our Lord's arrest make it obvious when his hour would come, right? And certainly this is some of what was behind your question. It would come in the final days of his earthly life with his suffering, death, and resurrection, essentially his paschal mystery. But, my friends, a closer look reveals that it does involve quite a bit more. When you look at the fourth gospel in its entirety and search out all the references to Jesus's hour, what you find is a much deeper spiritual sense to the word. Now, there's something interesting here when you talk about the hour and Jesus's use of the hour. Why didn't Jesus use the word moment? Certainly he could have spoken about his moment or uh, his day, or even his time. Yet he chose our, and he used it in a way that is remarkably consistent and with a powerful cumulative effect. And so, again, this evening is about looking at those specific passages in which he used the hour and what they reveal and point to. Now, the first time Jesus used the word our, he spoke about the central mystery of faith, essentially the work he had to accomplish. 
His first recorded use of the word is on the day of his first recorded miracle. And be rest assured, my friends, that is significant. Anytime you're dealing with two firsts, and those two firsts coming together, in this case, his use of the hour and his first miracle, that's what you call a rumble strip. It should kind of slow you down in your study. And again, I think this is part of what is behind your question. And what was that first moment? What was the first miracle? But the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee. So it is on that great day, he arrives at the feast that Sunday, along with who? But his mother, right? His mother and his disciples. Soon afterward, the party runs out of wine and what we could properly say is probably an embarrassing situation for the newlyweds, right? And Mary says to her son, they have no wine. And Jesus replies, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I have devoted a whole radio program to that one single verse, and so we have explored this to some degree. But we talk about it in a new context specific to the larger hour. I mean, if you were to read this, it probably strikes you as odd. And Mary had made a simple observation that the wine had run out. But Jesus appear, appears to read far too much into it. I mean, think about his response. Oh, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It seems way out of proportion to Mary's simple report. Now, just by way of footnote, the word woman in antiquity, while it may rub us the wrong way in our contemporary ears, was actually a great sign of respect, a title of respect. I think that's an important historical note. I was just talking about the literal sense and why it's so important. Well, there you have it. Anyway, uh, this phrase does seem way out of proportion, but maybe not. Not if you look closer. If you want to really make sense of Jesus' assertion, my hour has not yet come, we have to identify the underlying assumption. Clearly, Jesus anticipates an hour when something momentous will happen. Yet that time is clearly not yet now. We can compare it to an engaged man inviting his fiance to his bedroom to see his etchings. The fiance would be right to respond, what are you saying? Our hour has not yet come, right? Again, uh, the assumption here is that the hour will one day come when it will be proper for them to enter into his bedroom, but not yet. Okay? But what was the assumption underlying the conversation at Cana? And furthermore, what could possibly have reminded Jesus of his hour? These are questions that Dr. Hahn asks, and I think very important questions. In fact, he asks a third question. What in his mother's request even remotely suggests the still distant time of Jesus' self-offering? Well, one thing we know for sure is that Mary's request had an amazing effect on her son. We read in the Gospel of John, now six stone jars were standing there, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. 
When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So what does this story tell us about Jesus' hour? Cana, we are told, was the first of Jesus' signs. John uses the word sign instead of uh, wonder or miracle because he wishes to highlight the symbolic meaning behind the miracles. A sign is a miracle, yes, of course, but it also points to something even greater. It signifies something greater. I mean, look back through the exchange between Jesus and his mother. Only one thing in Mary's request could have triggered such a response. They have no wine. Jesus knew that when his hour would arrive, he would provide wine, indeed the finest wine. But that definitive hour had not yet come. Okay, let's move on here to the next instance of the hour. In the fourth chapter, Jesus is speaking with a person who today might be called marginalized, uh, the Samaritan woman, right? If you were a Samaritan, you were a member of a rebel people who, though they were descended from Israel, had for centuries observed a degraded and idolatrous religion. Devout Jews did not stoop to speak with Samaritans, yet Jesus chose this Samaritan woman to receive the first explicit teaching about what? His hour. After she speaks of the religious differences between Jews and Samaritans, he replies in, in chapter 4, verses 21 to 24, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So we find him speaking of his hour, but again, it goes beyond the historical events surrounding his passion. At Cana, his words revealed that he expected to provide wine when the hour came. Now, with the Samaritan woman, he reveals another dimension. In this passage, we learn that his hour is not only a time of providing wine, it is even more a time of worship a radically new way of worship, which even the Jews in the Jerusalem temple had never known. When the hour comes, the living water of the Holy Spirit will be poured out to enable, what does he say? All people to worship in spirit, in outpouring that changed the face of the earth. Jesus returns to the theme of his hour in John chapter 5, verse 25 as he explained why he was healing on the Sabbath. He told the crowd, what? Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Here is a third dimension of the hour. Not only is it a time of worship when the best wine will be provided, it is also a time when the word of God will bring people to repentance and forgiveness in short, as he says there in that verse, chapter 5, verse 25, new life. New life. Now, our Lord's next discussion of his hour takes place when? But at Passover. In Jerusalem, 
some Greeks approach Philip and request an audience with Jesus. This is in John chapter 12, verses 20 and following. Philip and Andrew informed Jesus, perhaps expecting him to say, you know, send them in. But as at Cana, Jesus responds in a way that is unexpected when he replies, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I mean, (laughs) what is going on here? The apostles tell Jesus that some Greeks are here to see him, and out of nowhere, at least it appears, he responds by saying his hour had come. And he also goes on to to talk about death and, and fruit and grains of wheat. What is going on? The apostles, to some extent, must have been confused. Once again, you have a simple request, and in response, Jesus preaches this deep sermon. There's a lot going on in this passage. So let's break it down. And this again, Dr. Hahn breaks this down. First, the exchange took place at Passover, as we noted. The Jewish feast commemorating Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. The central rite of the Passover feast was what but the sacrifice of a spotless lamb. In John's gospel, Jesus is explicitly called the Lamb of God. The hour of the Lamb then is what? But Passover. Now, this Passover is more significant because not just the children of Israel, but the nations, the Gentiles, the Greeks, all have come to find liberation. So now would be a good time for Jesus to use the lamb metaphor, right? But he doesn't. He speaks of wheat instead, and he speaks of wheat dying to produce much fruit. And how would that fruit manifest itself once the grains were were harvested? Well, as bread, of course. Now, my friends, is the hour, Jesus says. It is Passover. Jesus is the lamb, and he is speaking of his own sacrifice. It becomes even more explicit in later verses when speaking again of his hour, he says in chapter 12, verses 27 to 28, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. My dear friends, we must not miss the importance of this moment in the divine drama. Jesus is offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. And we must be clear about this. He's offering himself He was not the hapless victim of a Roman execution. He was a victim of love. His life was not taken, it was given. Love, properly defined, is to will the good of the other for the sake of other, as St. Thomas Aquinas reminds us. Jesus gave his life over. It was not taken. Before Pilate, Caiaphas, or, or Herod could decree his death, Jesus had to give up his life. Before anyone could lay a hand on him, he celebrated the Passover, and in doing so, he transformed the Passover into the Holy Eucharist, the fruit of the grain of wheat, after it has fallen into the ground and died. This is why he turned his life over. All this was, John tells us, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father.
just a few days later, we know from the other three Gospels, Jesus blessed the bread and the chalice of wine, pronouncing them to be his body and blood. Curiously, as Dr. Scott Hahn notes, and I think this is, to, uh, this is a very important point, John is the only gospel that does not recount those particular details of the Passover meal. Yet John does tell us more about the rest of that supper. Toward the end of the meal, John relates Jesus lifting up his eyes to heaven and saying, Father, thy hour has come. Glorify thy Son that the Son may glorify thee since thou hast given him power over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom thou hast given him. We know when this will happen, the hour. We know what will happen. Human beings will participate in the glory and communion shared by the Father and the Son in the Spirit. Amen to that. Getting to the heart of your question here. (laughs) Besides the obvious literal meaning of the hour, the historical event of the cross. What have we drawn from the passages we have reflected upon? What are the specifics to the hour? Well, in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, in the wedding feast at Cana, we receive wine, the best wine. In his encounter with the Samaritan woman, we are empowered to worship in a new way in spirit and truth. In John chapter 5, verse 25, we hear God's word in order to receive new life. In John chapter 12, verse 20, we gather together as Greeks and Jews to celebrate the new Passover. In John chapter 12, verses 23 to 24, we receive the living bread, the fruit born of the grain of wheat that has what? Died. And in chapter 12, verse 32, we are made to see that we will see the Lamb of God lifted up, drawing all men to himself. Take a second look, my friends, at what the hour brings. Bread, wine, the word of the Lord, spiritual worship, a new Passover for Jews and Greeks, a drawing all men to himself. What does this add up to but the Mass, the Eucharist, the liturgy? I opened up with a reflection into Kronos and Kairos and with a brief word to the importance of praying that the deeper we go into prayer, kairos, God's graced, purpose-driven time, will form and inform chronos. Where does this happen par excellence? But in the Eucharist. In the Eucharist. So you ask me, what is the relevant context of the hour in the Gospel of John? My response to you is the Mass. Spend time with it, my friends. Be enriched by sacred scripture. Go deeper. Go snorkeling into sacred scripture, right? Get underneath what the text says. And what you'll discover is a profound beauty, truth, and goodness. Amen? All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen? And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.